0: Our second reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter five, beginning in verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed in Moses, you would believe in me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The word of the Lord.
1: In John chapter 5, Jesus seems to be responding to an implicit set of questions that aren't actually stated. But the questions seem to be something like this, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? And what right does he have to say and do the sorts of things he's doing? Why should we believe in this guy? Jesus' answer is seen in a couple of verses. In verse 37, he says, look, it's the Father who sent me who bears witness to me. He says, look at my life, look at everything I've done, and it aligns with the Father whom you believe in. And on top of that, he says, the Scriptures themselves bear witness to me. You search the Scriptures looking for eternal life, but they bear witness to me. And he takes it a step further, digging in, and he says the law of Moses. That's the main thing that a Jewish religious leader would have known and essentially memorized. He says, go look at the law of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the law itself is pointing to me. You study these things, you read about them, and they all talk about me, Jesus claims. Over the past five weeks, we've been in a series called Explore God, looking at the seven big questions that people have about faith and God and life. And whether you are a Christian who has very firm beliefs, or whether you come here as a skeptic, a doubter, an agnostic trying to figure stuff out, this has hopefully been a good exploration of these topics where you've been able to look a little bit at what the Christian answer is, but also there's credence and value to asking these sorts of questions in general. We've looked at, does life have a purpose? Is there a God? What do we do with suffering? And who exactly is Jesus? This question today actually gets at the Christian answer to all of them because in the Christian answer to all of them, you could look at it over the past few weeks, It's all derived from the Bible. Everything that we've talked about from a Christian perspective is derived from and stands upon the Bible. And so the question today is very simply, is the Bible actually reliable? And if you talk to people about it, it goes something like this. Isn't the Bible inaccurate? Doesn't it contradict itself in some places? Hasn't it been disproven? Isn't it actually irrelevant and outdated because of some of what it teaches? So we'll look a little bit at that, but then look at the question that underlies that that I think is a little more helpful for us. So for 200 years, there's been critical scholarship in biblical studies that has challenged orthodoxy and the traditional view of the Bible. Now, any of you who have gone to college and taken a religious studies course know what I'm talking about. The college that I went to, they had a great religious studies department and they had classes like the Historic Jesus and the Letters of Paul, and in those you were actually getting critical scholarship's view on the Bible, which is the Bible should not be trusted the way the church claims it should be trusted. The primary reason you shouldn't trust the Bible according to academic circles is because of authorship issues. You say Matthew or Mark or Luke or John wrote these books, we can't know that. And here's basically what 200 years of scholarship says. The Bible, even like the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Luke, is a compilation of oral tradition and legends that were put together hundreds of years later by those in power. The church gains power connected to the emperor in 400, 500 A.D., and they then determine what should be included in the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke. In other words, the Bible was not written in the first century and it was not written by eyewitnesses. This became most popular and reached its heyday in the mid-80s with a thing called the Jesus Seminar, a collection of scholars uh, around the globe who were trying to determine who the real Jesus was. So, they were trying to look back at which parts of the Gospels and the accounts about Jesus they could trust. Now, they came with a certain set of assumptions. The assumptions were, there's no such thing as miracles, because everyone knows miracles don't happen, dead people don't rise, and we can't prove that there's a God. Then they sought to figure out what the gospel said and who Jesus actually was. This is called highly skeptical biblical scholarship. And in highly skeptical biblical scholarship, you have something that's assumed. It's absolute scientific rational materialism. Basically, the only things that actually exist are things you can prove and touch by science, which means dead people don't rise blind people don't see and no human being is god so they started with this set of conclusions and then searched for evidence and much of it was very speculative it's similar to this if you assume that lee harvey oswald did not shoot jfk you can find a conspiracy to align with that. If you assume that man did not land on the moon, you can come up with reasons why the government would have wanted to pretend like that happened. If you assume miracles do not happen and there cannot be a God, you can start asking a set of questions that assume that Jesus could not be who He claimed to be, and the Bible must not be accurate, and therefore we have to show you why what was written down was written down in the way it was. Anne Rice is a novelist, a writer, who lost faith and then came back to faith in the process of studying the scholarship herself. She came back to faith after looking at the scholarship on Jesus, and she wrote, Some books written about Jesus were no more than assumptions piled on assumptions. Conclusions were reached on the basis of little or no data at all. The whole case for the non-divine Jesus was not made. Not only was it not made… I discovered in this field some of the most biased scholarship I'd ever read what she saw and what people often see when they look at this carefully is that the methods and assumptions of highly skeptical biblical scholarship would never be tolerated in any other academic field AND IT'S OVERLOOKING A LOT OF THE VERY BASIC EVIDENCES FOR THE RELIABILITY OF THE SCRIPTURES THEMSELVES. ONE OF THE MOST COMMON REASONS WHY YOU CAN TRUST THE SCRIPTURES IS BECAUSE THEY INCLUDE EMBARRASSING ACCOUNTS. OKAY? JESUS HUNG OUT WITH PROSTITUTES AND TAX COLLECTORS. HIS CLOSEST DISCIPLES, THE ONE ON WHOM THE CHURCH IS BUILT, ARE DAFT IDIOTS. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he's crucified, Jesus is begging with the Father for there to be another way. If hundreds of years after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, you're trying to fabricate a reason to believe in Jesus as God, you do not include those sorts of things. And of course, one that you may have heard before is that the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection were women. Not only that, but Mary Magdalene, who had a challenging past, if you would. Celsus, a second-century writer and critic of Christianity who was writing against Christianity, said, you can't believe Mary Magdalene because, after all, she was a hysterical female deluded by sorcery, which is a common misogynist trope, especially in the ancient world. Women cannot be trusted. In fact, in Jewish circles, they were not trusted as Uh, being able to provide witness in court because what they said didn't matter. And in Greco-Roman circles, it was the same way. Women are easily hysterical. They're deluded. Yet the very first account of the resurrection is women, Mary Magdalene and others. If you were trying to make this stuff up and somebody said, well, the first witness was Mary Magdalene, you would say, shh, don't let anyone know. You put that down on paper people are going to know this is fake they won't believe it unless of course mary magdalene was actually a witness and the first people to see the tomb empty were women unless of course it was actually true but that's a simple answer and why believe in simple answers on top of that you have the details that are included in the gospels So Jesus rests his head on a pillow in the back of a boat, something we don't need to know. Just Jesus is asleep. There were 137 fish at the fish fry on the beach after Jesus' resurrection. Who cares how many fish unless somebody actually remembered how many fish? And who of you knows Alexander and Rufus? So Alexander and Rufus are mentioned in one of the accounts of Simon of Cyrene, who carried Jesus' cross. And the Gospel writer says, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, the reason why you would say that is because the people who would end up reading that Gospel account would probably know Alexander and Rufus. It would be like, hey, if you're not sure whether this happened or not, ask Alexander and Rufus. You guys know them. It was their dad carrying the cross. The details of the evidence, the details in the Gospels are actually evidence and here's why. The genre of of realistic fiction didn't exist for 1700 more years. C.S. Lewis, who was a medieval literature scholar and professor at Oxford, said this, either this is reportage, talking about the Gospels, or else some unknown writer without predecessor or successors for 1,700 years, suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic, realistic narrative. You and I are so used to novels being made realistic that a kid who writes a story includes details because they've learned how to do that. But prior to 1,800, that really didn't exist. Go read Beowulf and the Iliad, if you dare, and compare them to Middlemarch or Huck Finn. Middlemarch and Huck Finn include details of the day, of the way things worked, unnecessary details, sights and smells, things that don't align with plot or character, because it was a way of drawing you into the believability of it. That genre did not exist in the first century, except when it was actual eyewitness account and history. So either it actually was, or those writers were the most brilliant people ever, ever, and for 1,700 years we lost that technique known as realistic fiction. Over the past 30 years, actually if you look at scholarship from the 1990s on, the pendulum has actually swung back to the orthodox and traditional view of the Bible as integrated whole, as authentic in its authorship, as early in its writing. If you want some uh, guys to look at, go read N.T. Wright's The New Testament and the People of God, or Jesus and the Victory of God, or Richard Bauckham's book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. I haven't read that one, but it was recommended to me, and I've looked a little bit at it. These are ways to dig in more deeply at the evidences that are out there and some of the scholarship. And if you are in college right now and you've taken one of these courses, and this was not on your recommended reading list, It's possible that the professor was a little bit nervous about you reading these. Because the academic scholarship is at the highest level, and it's contradicting much of what is taught in most universities. So that's the academic side. Let's put that one aside for a little bit and talk briefly about the popular contradictions or challenges to Christianity. When I talk to people, most often they're not actually talking about that academic stuff. You know what their reason for not believing in the Bible is? It's because it is outdated and irrelevant. The things it talks about, clearly we no longer believe, and therefore you can't take the Bible literally. Now, the problem with that is it's coming from a perspective that suggests that where we are right now is the culturally superior moment. And that the place that we are has reached a point of progress that means that everything that preceded us was clearly wrong. And that we are culturally superior here in the West, something we would never really say. But take, for example, two different things that happen in the Gospels. One is Jesus teaches about this thing known as judgment. At some points in the Gospel, Jesus says, one day there will be a judgment of the living and the dead. And there is consequence eternally. That's something that does not sit well with us. We don't like that idea that there could be a God that judges everyone. Now, on the other hand, there's a story that's also included in the Gospels, which is Peter. Now, Peter denies Jesus. He's disloyal to Jesus in the end. He betrays Jesus, if you would. But according to John 20, Jesus forgives Peter and even reinstates Peter and says, you will be a pillar on which the church is founded. And we love that story today. We love the story of the guy who was disloyal and and sinned against Jesus being forgiven and even elevated. That's a story we in America love, the judgment one we don't like. Now, if you travel 6,000 miles to the east or you go 1,000 years into the past, They are going to flip the stories they like. You talk to people in the Middle East today or in the Anglo-Saxon world a thousand years ago about a God of judgment who is going to bring justice and vindication and they will say yes. But you talk to them about a guy who is disloyal, breaking community bonds, being forgiven and reinstated, and that's absurd. The judgment that we often put on the Scriptures is a culturally narrow and assumed superior position that doesn't take into account the fact that the Bible at almost every cultural moment challenges every cultural moment on some points. And so we have to ask the question, is it possible if there is a God that he may have some views that we don't like? Don't let cultural bias or unexamined assumptions cause you to be dismissive of the scriptures. So I can make reasonable and academic arguments for the historicity of the Bible, but is it inspired, is it inerrant, is it actually God's Word to us? I actually can't prove that. That you're gonna have to take on faith and that does require faith. But I wanna ask the question that's underneath the question, is the Bible reliable? The question underneath it is this, what do you actually rely on? It's the question of authority. So, you've heard me talk about this for months. The word authority is the issue beneath all issues of faith and doubt in our modern world. So, if I was defining authority, authority is the filter through which we interpret life and develop our worldview. It's the foundation on which we build everything that we believe. It's the soil in which we grow the garden of our worldview. It's the glasses through which we see and interpret the world around us. Our authority or authorities is the determining influence in our lives. So let's take for a moment the traditional world. Go back 1,000 years, 500 years ago. In the traditional world, you had a, a series of circles of influence around you, your family, your community, and the traditions of the culture. These things shaped who you were. They were the authorities on which you built your entire understanding of the world. You didn't ask questions outside of it. Everything you did lived within it, and it was actually a pretty closed system. But with the Enlightenment, all of that began to shake, and over the past 30 years, we've developed into the individualistic world. In the individualistic world, there's relativism and no absolute truth, and there's no longer a common authority anymore. Beliefs are not assumed and passed on. Rather, every person must figure it out themselves, drawing on the different influences in their lives. So let's take an average 16-year-old kid who might be walking the halls of Madison tomorrow or the week's upcoming. An average 16-year-old kid has a series of things that influence them. Feelings, parents, social media, culture, peers, science, friends, grades. You could probably go on off of that. Their chemistry, their body chemistry, that is, on a given day, their experiences, the good and bad of what's going on socially. All these things are influences, pushing and pulling on them, right? An average 16-year-old in America today. So how is this 16-year-old supposed to determine who they are, their identity? Why they're here, purpose, or what is good and true. Let's make it a little more explicit. Let's say the question that the 16-year-old is asking is, should I have sex with my girlfriend? We've been dating a year, and should I have sex? The different influences and authorities in their life will speak in with different answers. And depending on the influence and authority, the answer might be different. As they look at it, it might be that their feelings say yes, but they know their parents aren't going to be too cool with it. The culture says yes. The teachers might say no because they don't want you to get distracted from your grades. Your peers are going to say yes. Social media will say yes by its messaging, but no because, gosh, what if it gets found out? And you live in a conflicted universe of who or what is going to win out. My take is, something, in the end, is going to get a 51% vote. Of all these things, you will decide based on something. Something will be your ultimate authority, your prime influence It will determine your purpose, your identity, your calling, what's good and true, and how you interpret the world and live your life. Something, ultimately, will be the authority. But many of us, and this isn't just a 16-year-old kid, most of us, including Christians in this room, live schizophrenic and non-integrated lives. We rely on culturally unproven assumptions or our present feelings about stuff. And we don't have clear authority or our authority base changes based on the day or our feelings, or whatever the issue is. With different issues, we rely on different authorities. When it comes to sex, it's our feelings. When it comes to our future, it's our parents. When it comes to how we interpret the world, it's social media. Christianity, makes the claim that God is meant to be the ultimate authority in our lives. But for God to be the ultimate authority, I need to know God. And in order to know God, I need to be in relationship with God. Christianity makes the claim that God is not discovered by you going out and searching, but rather God reveals himself and speaks to us. The primary way God has spoken to us is in Jesus Christ, incarnate, Crucified and risen. You want to know God? You need to know Jesus. How do we know Jesus? In Scripture. And when we know Jesus through Scripture, when we know Christ, it's Christ through whom we interpret the world around us and we prioritize the influences in our lives. When Christ is our primary authority, everything else is ordered underneath of Christ. And those things have a part to play. Culture and parents and feelings and science and friends and thoughts, all these things have a say in what we do with sexuality or our career or our priorities or how we interpret politics. But they are subsumed under Christ. The Bible does not tell you does not tell you details about mathematics or science or the history of the world, what you should wear tomorrow. It does tell you what is necessary to know about life and salvation. It reveals God and reveals what is the prime importance. And from that, everything else derives its meaning. influences. What are the influences in our lives? You know, we tend to take on traits and tendencies of people with whom we spend time. It's been said that married couples look more and more alike over time, and actually there was a study done by a University of Michigan professor that showed that 25 years into a marriage, couples looked more alike than they did before. Now, this can be because they live in the same climate, they buy clothes from the same place, they eat the same amount of food or do the same amount of exercise. All these things can shape you looking more like each other over the course of years. But do you know that this uh, professor who looked into this, he said that actually there's also this take that when one person in the couple laughs a lot and jokes a lot, 25 years later, both couples have laugh and smile wrinkle lines. And of course, probably the opposite is also true. A lot of frowning, anger, seriousness means probably both couples are going to look frowny, angry, and serious. Laugh a lot more, please. (laughs) In college, I lived in a house with a bunch of guys. There was over a dozen of us that lived in the same house. And I was influenced by all of them. My second year in college, my roommate was Marcus. Marcus was brilliant, and on top of that, he studied incredibly hard. He was a biochem major who wanted to be a doctor one day. In the mornings when I woke up, he had already left to go to the library, to get to the library before his first set of classes. After class, he would stay in the library and study until about 6 o'clock at night when he would come home, have dinner, watch maybe a TV show before he started studying again at 10 o'clock at night that he would do until 2 in the morning. Pretty much every night, I went to bed with a pillow covering my face from the light. But as a result of Marcus, I took my work more seriously. He never said, don't you need to do something? I saw him, and I felt compelled to take my studies more seriously, to read, to prepare, to not procrastinate. He affected me because of how much time I'd seen around him and how seriously I saw him take his work. Now, the flip side of Marcus was Seth. Now, Seth was the social fun of the house. If you ever wanted a distraction, Seth had the distraction. If you wanted a three-hour Frisbee golf tournament that was going to go all over campus instead of your 3 p.m. class, Seth had it set up. Seth was the reason why a half dozen of us would eat two dozen, three dozen donuts at 10 o'clock at night. He had a common phrase, are you in or are you in, which meant you're in. (laughs) One particular night, it involved a raid on a neighboring school's house to do pranks in the middle of the night. All the boys at that house were away on fall break. The all-night pranks involved raw fish, many eggs, and an unfortunate turkey that was found on the side of the road that met its quick end with a truck somewhere earlier in the night. Why was I doing all of that? Because Seth said, are you in or are you in? (laughs) These weren't just housemates or roommates. They were friends. And they weren't just friends. They were people who shaped me. They shaped how I worked, how I played, even the very things that came out of my mouth. You and I take everything in and everything we take in can influence and shape us. Whatever enters your mind the most, people, media, books, the creation around you, whatever enters your mind the most will shape you the most. We are, as James K. Smith said, habitual creatures. And what we do most will determine what we love. In Psalm 19, the psalmist prays at the end of his psalm, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. He says this because he has spent his life looking to God. In verse 1, he looks at the cosmos. The heavens declare your handiwork. He says, there is a designer. There is a God. I see him as I look at and study the creation. And not only that, I look at the law and the words of God. The word of God, the law of God rejoices. It enlightens. It revives. It gives wisdom. It is the source of life to the psalmist. And so he is able to say in verse 14, from my primary influences, my primary authorities, studying the cosmos and studying God's Word, he has a purpose. He wants a life that reflects the Lord, the God that he's known. Okay, at minimum, the Bible is probably the least bad thing that can influence you, It's the single most read book in history. It has the most influential teaching in Western civilization. Everything from uh, human liberty to human dignity to human rights are built out of a Christian and Judaic ethic that are born out of the Bible. And it's written primarily, as Jesus says, about the most influential person to ever walk the earth, who may even by some accounts be God. So, even if you're not comfortable saying the Bible is the inspired, inerrant Word of God, then at least it's an amazing and spiritual text that can shape you for the better. And if there happens to be a God, you're probably going to meet Him in that Bible. A couple who is married for 25 years, has spent a lot of time together. They have talked together, they have worked side by side, they've relaxed and enjoyed life together, and they've probably suffered together. They have learned to love each other and be shaped by each other. So much so that one spouse, after 25 or 30 years of a good marriage, can usually say with confidence, oh, she would love this restaurant or he'd hate this movie because they know. They know their spouse. They've been shaped by them. They've spent time with them, and they've begun to love the very things their spouse loves. The same is true with God and you. And through Scripture, you are spending time with God, getting to know God, to love the things that God loves. And over the course of time, a lifetime, meditating on, reading, memorizing, studying the Scriptures, you will find the wrinkles of your spiritual soul matching that of the God who made you. Let's pray. God, may the meditations of our heart, the words of our mouth, not just be acceptable to you, but look like you, sound like you, laugh like you. In a world filled with many competing authorities and influences, give us the wisdom to see if what you offer us in your Son, Jesus, and what is revealed in the Scriptures is what we need most to know. In your name we pray. Amen.